0: two of dust and divinity an ongoing conversation with makers thinkers and doers where we ask big questions of the small things
1: what's the value if you're spreading yourself too thin and i am have fallen you know prey to the too thin category plenty of times um And I have to be really careful not to fall prey to that. There there are so many hours in the day and at the end of the day. And when your life is over, like how valuable was splitting your time so frequently? And could you have done things much more meaningfully if you had just limited it down?
0: Welcome back to the second half of our conversation with Josh and Luke, where we talk COVID, pace of life, and how society treats children. Enjoy the ride.
2: Welcome to America.
1: Uh, Yeah. It's been, you know, I, I don't know, you're both in kind of very different settings. So I'm in a, you know, I'm in a city. And can't go to parks; they're all fenced off. Um, I mean, like the playgrounds are literally got fences around them. The one like down the street from me. But then you've got where you're coming from. It sounds like you're both in very different settings. So, Caven, you're out in the country, where other than having to go into town to purchase supplies or food or something like that, your such your situation sounds very different than than Luke's. And Luke, it sounds like your community is just like at wit's end uh, on lockdown. But what is the thing that for you has been just most, huh, I never would have thought, you know, in in our lifetime from this experience so far?
0: Yeah, I think there's a convergence of a lot of different threads. I think there's been a multi-year, well, multi-generation diminishment of trust in the government Coupled recently with at least a decade-long erosion of trust in reporting and the media, combined with recently an erosion of trust in science—well, I shouldn't say recently, it's that's old as well—but it's really become popular. A lot of anti-science energy has been animated recently. And then, of course, you have the increase of natural disasters. So here in California, because it's about 20 miles from my house, the campfire is a really significant moment. We know dozens and dozens. We probably know 50 individual families who lost their homes and everything they owned in that one fire. So that's a huge point of consciousness for this particular community that we're in. So I think all these threads are coming together. And then you have what happened with Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd and You have that happen in a moment where there's an administration who is openly antagonistic toward making any kind of reconciliatory efforts. And you have that also at the same time of having people in lockdown where there's a lot more time to scroll on social media and uh, get in longer conversations online. It's created kind of this very unique situation where we're trying to handle a once in a hundred year economic recession, a once in a hundred year racial reconciliation moment, a once in a hundred year pandemic, and once in a hundred year natural disasters are happening all the time. And of course, we just had a once in a hundred year economic recession 12 years ago. So there's these Things that I think maybe my parents as they were in the hospital room in the late 80s as I was born would have never envisioned that this is what the future looks like for me, right? As I'm coming into the world in the late 80s. The reason we call it once in a hundred year is because it used to be rare. And now what we're finding with economic instability and ecologic instability is that those 100-year marks are being compressed down to decade marks, which for human survivability introduces some really significant complications towards being able to predict any kind of future environment and what that might mean for our kids, which wells up all kinds of internal insecurities within us, which makes us more prone toward tribalism and kind of looking out for number one and taking care of our own, which then accelerates the fuel for racial division and racial tension combined with just the fact that we have access to a lot more information now. Like I just, I cannot believe the stuff that I was not taught in school. You know, when I was in school learning these things, I didn't have an, we used Paper encyclopedias when I was in elementary school. Now there's no reason for me to not know this stuff because it's all on the internet and it's all coming to me now through my newsfeed. And I am in lockdown, so I am seeing that. And so I'm learning a lot, and that's a good thing. And it adds just this other complicating factor towards this human wide anxiety that's growing about our future viability as a species as we stare down the barrel of climate change and worldwide pandemics. There is this real sense of the rose colored glasses through which we viewed the world, maybe since the 1950s, are definitely off for everyone. And for those who it's not off, it's really obvious that they're not on the same page as the rest of humanity. Of course, you know, people of color and indigenous people have not had rose-colored glasses on for a very, very long time, and they've been telling us to take our rose-colored glasses off. Climate activists have been telling us to take our rose-colored glasses off. All these different individual facets have all been kind of sounding the bell for a long time, but now we have a convergence of all those factors at once, and we have this forced pause where we can't busy ourselves with other kind of shiny new things to distract us. We actually are in a place where listening is obvious because it's more available. So we are listening. Even if we don't want to be listening, we're just hearing a lot more and it's causing this reckoning. And so I think that's something that I look at and I'm like, wow, I don't think anyone standing around that hospital room as I was being born would have ever projected this as what the year 2020 looked like.
2: Yeah. COVID-19 has certainly, um, Impacted our community in big ways here in Sacramento, um, but I would say probably from talking to my parents and other people living in it Other neighborhoods that are not highly uh, populated by refugees um, uh, I think our neighborhood has been impacted Less in the ways that people go about doing things than other places and um, that's because people already were going to the park every night with their kids. That was just part of our daily rhythms. That was part of our neighbor's daily rhythms. It is quite a unique space that we live in. Uh, that we're super grateful for. So the change I think was kind of reverse. It was all of a sudden everyone was inside their apartments and that was very hard because I think that's another factor of, um, People living in tiny places, tiny apartments, they with large families, they want to be in these public parks, in these beautiful spaces that we have here in Sacramento. So that's a norm, neighbors seeing each other, greeting each other, hanging out with each other in the park every single day of the week, whether it's 99 degrees or 40 degrees. They're there. I know it. My neighbors are there. Um, but but for sure it's changed things Uh, and and, and it has been very difficult for kids being stuck inside and one day going to school and the very next day as things closed up in mid-March you know all of a sudden they get a Chromebook from their school and they are told that they have to do all of their schooling on zoom with teachers and they are at my daughter's school that she goes to there's 800 kids and 400 and 400 plus of, of those kids are English learners they're refugees so half of the school population all of a sudden having to do their education online, um, that creates issues and um, it, it was very difficult for a lot of people in our neighborhood to do things as simple as education and figure out how to do Zoom calls and um, most of the kids did not do their work because it was just too tricky to, for them to try to figure out in a language that's not their heart language. So that was, that was hard um, and then another just factor during the midst of it all was one of the fathers of, of a boy in our program. Uh, he got COVID and died in a hospital um, down the street from us. And it was very sad and his wife had already passed away in Afghanistan before she came so he left two kids in the middle of a pandemic um, who were quarantined for two weeks, a 14-year-old and a 19-year-old. Just an absolute tragedy and very difficult for our community to help them during such a time of intense lockdown. Um, so that was a, yeah, a really tricky thing that that made it so many of our neighbors took the COVID, um, yeah, took it all a lot more serious. Uh, and, and there just has been, I think this time for our neighborhood has been marked by confusion. But now that things are lifting a bit more, there seems to be a lot more um, openness and a lot less fear as people are engaging in the park. Um, some of them with masks, some of them without. <laughs> it's always interesting.
0: I do want to hang on to this thread of pace of life a little bit. We've touched a little bit on how the change of pace in life makes us better parents when we focus less on quality and more on quantity. And I just wonder if that same principle or a similar principle, if we just kind of grabbed that by its edges and pulled it and stretched it and folded it a little bit more, if we might find that it could also be true in other areas of our life,
1: I would say for sure in my neighborhood um, just sitting and, and listening to to people's live stories I mean my my next door neighbors um, a wonderful couple and they're I think you know mid sixties and we've seen them and we've always been friendly, hi, how are you? But, I mean, they adore our kids, and um, they've lived these incredible lives, and back and forth to India, and and from the East Coast, and talking about the Cape, and having been DJs, (laughs) just, I mean, you just hear these stories, and you, I just don't, I don't know in, in what other way I would have ever slowed down enough to really get to know them in in the same way. Um, but I think in my professional life, I'm trying to be less go, 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 um, and a little more how do I want to spend my time, what do I really want to focus in on, in the repetition. Um, I th- I think that there's something about... Having that focus and, and patience, and not getting the exact right result that you want right away, um, is not something that we're accustomed to in you know pre-COVID time. <laughs> and you know, I think a lot of people are are thinking about life differently, especially with you know working from home or working remote or changing career fields. And trying to think about how to be a little uh, more patient with your professional approach as well as like your personal life and your relationships with your family. I mean, I think that it extends well beyond, you know, putting in hours thinking about what you're going to do next. One one of my mentors, he, he always talks about divergence, convergence, and he's nearing 80. And he's just an incredible human being. I mean, if the world could be a little more like him, I think we'd all be better off. Um, but just a really humble, wise, patient, caring individual uh, who I have incredible respect for. And I would be working with him on a project or something. I'd be like, okay, so we're going to, here's all the things I've found. Okay, let's start. Let's do this. And he's like, no, 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 no. Explore further. It, you know, keep keep diverging like keep exploring further like you don't know what you're going to find when you keep broadening your your search and your reach and then once you think you've gone far enough then keep going and then start to bring it back into frame and start thinking about what it looks like because it may change everything and he's he's told me that over the years in many different settings and I don't think I really heard it until now. And I'm thinking about that much differently and I'm taking it much more seriously now about the pace at which we approach everything. It's going to be better and we're going to have gone in the right direction if we just wait just a little bit longer, if we explore just a little bit further, if we pause and reflect just a little bit more. Um, the quantity and the patience, you have to limit the number of things that you're doing now. So to put in that kind of quantity, you only have so many hours in the day. You have to limit where you're spending those hours, but I think you should be spending more hours in fewer areas, I guess, is where, where I'm headed.
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. I, and that's where we learned a lot Uh, from 2011 to 2017 living in Malawi um, seeing our pace of life being frantic and very much so um, bringing kind of what we learned with go 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 in the West uh, but then realizing how frequently that did not work uh, in working with our Malawian friends Um, and and as we Looked closely at their life. By God's grace, we had the ability to slow down. Primarily, when I because I got really sick, um, but when I was sick, uh, I was able to see what they did in times that I thought were lazy or unproductive. Or unproductive. Um, they were walking down their dirt road and sitting with their neighbor and eating sugarcane with their neighbor and not productive in the West size, right? But man, those people were full of joy. And they knew how to deal with hardship. And they were resilient. And there was so much that my wife and I learned from the first three years of not doing that when we were there to the last three years um, of doing a lot of that. And finding and then and then just slowly learning from them and asking questions to them. And we're still in a process of learning, but as we move to a new neighborhood and a new country here in the States, of applying some of those things, like make our world smaller, and just what you said, Josh, less less yes to things. And that means that we have to say no more frequently. We have to say no to fun a lot we have to say no to and we're still learning how to do this we have not mastered this but trying to make as many of our connections um, as close to our our front door as possible uh, those are just a few things that we've learned from our African friends uh, that have really hugely impacted our life and it is incredibly hard to implement here but it's possible we're just finding, like, as the months go by, just constantly having to revisit that month by month, having to revisit, okay, how are we doing? Are we overcommitted? Are we able to listen well? Are we, how, where is our joy tank? Um, and noticing that there's a, a really close correlation between uh, if we are, like, just busy too much and our joy and our patience.
1: You say the word busy, and that jumps out at me. That's like a currency in the United States. And and I, I think, you know, I'm, I'd be the first to raise my hand and say, you know, if I'm busy, people are like, oh, Josh is really busy. And I, I mean, geez louise, I <laughs> I do, I probably overextend myself a billion times over. Um, I, it's, you know, I just commit to all kinds of things, um, and it, it, comes from a good place, you know, I, I want to help, you know, someone out, or I want to work on a project, because it looks really interesting, or a lot of it gets reinforced, um, you know, Folks are like, oh, you're really busy. For whatever reason, it, that makes you feel better. Like, oh, well, I'm I'm really busy, so I'm I'm doing something. But what you know, what's the value if you're spreading yourself too thin? And I am have fallen, you know, prey to the too thin category plenty of times, um, and I have to be really careful not to fall prey to that. And especially dividing my my different responsibilities between, you know, my full-time role, my military commitments, and teaching, and then just volunteering time and being a, a dad, you know, I mean, if and a husband, right, and a friend. I have, you know, you have to have time for your friends too, um, and you have to have time for yourself, like just going for a walk or a run. There are so many hours in the day and at the end of the day. And when your life is over, like, how valuable was splitting your time so frequently? And could you have done things much more meaningfully if you had just limited it down? But I think busyness, I I hope that this will shift, the pandemic will shift the emphasis on valuing busyness. And, you know, maybe that would be one positive outcome from the pandemic, maybe.
0: Yeah, we we do seem to have this very interesting relationship with busyness and productivity. And I think it's a, I've been thinking about this a lot as I have moved from a tech startup to being a farmer. Those are pretty dramatic changes of pace. And so I could see this difference in pretty sharp relief, and I'm still kind of chewing on it. But we do seem to have this tendency of putting value on empty things. And what I mean by that is we value busyness, but busyness by itself doesn't make anything. Now, if you're busy making something, the thing that you've made has value but the busyness to get there doesn't actually have value. And when we trace it back, I've been trying to educate myself a little bit. And so I'm just very, very, very much at the beginning learning stages. Um, but the idea of labor, the idea of the number of hours I work being connected to my economic value was really a product of the industrial revolution. Before that, People worked, but they didn't labor. Uh, They worked to sew clothes or to shape an axe or to do some other useful thing, but they would not have considered themselves busy. It was simply the task at hand. And the value wasn't on how much time they spent making the axe. The value was on now they had an axe but this idea that now we've connected that somehow i'm more valuable if i make more axes is really a modern human phenomenon um and i think we're still in the toddler to adolescent stages as collective humanity in working through how to integrate that into our humanity um because there is something about our human spirit that is connected to this wider world and really specifically connected to the dirt under our feet. And when we spend so much effort trampling over the dirt to rush from one thing to the next, that we become disconnected from it, our soul hurts a little bit. And I think we're feeling that as a human race, um, whether we're feeling that through our food system or our medical system or our climate, we're feeling this disconnectedness and we used to, we used to be more connected. Productivity used to not be the metrics of, of success. Or let me say it this way. Productivity came to be defined by the assembly line. Whereas before, productivity was defined by the harvest. The assembly line, you can mod- modernize and innovate and increase the efficiency to produce more of something. But I can't rush my walnut trees in their production of fruit. I cannot will them to harvest in July. I harvest in October, because that is when the tree is ready. And I take time paying attention to the trees, being present to the trees, being among the trees, but I never rush them for harvest, and yet they are incredibly productive, because the way that I define productivity on the farm, it's in seasonality, it's in attending to, it's in a cultivation, that used to not be something that had to be distinguished. And now with labor hours and units of output, suddenly efficiency and productivity have come to be defined by machines instead of by the sun and the earth. And I feel like our human spirit is being tested and worn thin and wondering if maybe there's a way to integrate learning from deeper sources into what it means to be a productive human being that we're getting a little bit of a collective taste from during this pandemic where we're having to release the lever of economic assembly line productivity a little bit. And we're beginning to breathe a little bit and say, Oh, this is nice. I can breathe. And beginning to wonder if there might be more down that path if we were ever so courageous as to walk it.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I think about frequently is energy. Like the world is just transference of energy from one thing to the next it it is basic form you know for us to live something else is giving us energy whether that's plants or animals it takes energy to get from one place to the next place um fossil fuels have like transformed how we get you know we can get whatever food we want whatever season we want whenever we want um because we can it's cost effective to take those those um items from other parts of the world and and bring them to the US or, or bring them to other countries. I, like roses are a perfect example. So roses grew really well in Navasha where I grew up and we'd ship them, you know, they'd ship all over the world and people would pay for them. But how we value everything and, and the system that we've designed to support the world that we currently have. I mean, it's very disconnected and it's not sustainable. And I think at some point there has to be a readjustment. So maybe that's the point now where, you know, it doesn't necessarily tie to the assembly lines and, um, you know, the eight hour, 40 hour work week, eight hour work day from, like, you know, the Industrial Revolution era. But, I do think that it's at least giving everyone pause to consider, wait, why do we ship um, produce from New York to, to, to Texas if there's farmers in Texas? <laughs> um, my dad works in food distribution and for a food bank, and... One of the challenges that they've had through this pandemic is just large packaging plants and um, distribution centers have been shut down because of, you know, outbreaks in those various centers. So they can't, there's food and there's people who need food desperately in this country and they can't get it there because the system was designed that, you know, wasn't built around like local it was built around enterprise-wide, you know, the multi-state. And a lot of that comes from the fact that we can, we're just burning through one form of energy to transfer other life forms of energy and food and produce and things like that. Um, and it's just, it isn't sustainable. So, I mean, we've been hurting our planet for a long time. And I couldn't agree with you more, Cabin, on on that front. Um, you know, so maybe it does turn things back and maybe there's less push and, and want in the world for things that we don't really need. And, and folks are starting to realize what they may need versus want, um, in the current climate.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I kind of secretly hope that we move back towards a pantheon of value. And what I mean by that is if we're honest, the world we live in right now is a monotheistic world where the deity is economic return or economic value. And anytime you threaten economic value, you get white people with AR-15s yelling at policemen for not letting them open up a hair salon. Right. Like As soon as you begin to threaten economic value, people turn out in droves and people lose their minds. But that wasn't always the case. Economic value was one of many valuable things, including the neighborhood, including the soil under our feet, including the sky over our head, including the story of our people, including lots of other things that all held equal value. So it wasn't. So right now it's binary. It's, does this hurt the economic bottom line? Yes or no. That is like the primary filter. Whereas a pantheistic value model would say there's these five or seven things that we hold in equal value. And we recognize that there's inherent tensions within holding all of them at equal value. And so there's going to have to be some give and some take. Sometime we're going to do something for economic gain that might hurt some other value we hold. Other times we're going to do things for relational gain or climate ecological gain that might hurt other values we hold. But we're just recognizing that we're doing this as a cohort of multiple values that we hold in tension, which is really hard to do. It's much easier to control the masses, control the narrative, control the policy when there's only one thing that you care about. And we have been superbly conditioned to care only about economic value. It's very true.
1: One big thing that I'm thinking about through all of this, you know, being dads, when I think about where the world is right now and, you know, I wouldn't have predicted where we're going to be here in 2020. um, I'm constantly just overwhelmingly impressed with my son and, and kids right now. And I think that's one of the biggest um, impacts I'm seeing is, their knowledge and their understanding of the world and thought about the world. And I do think that children right now are really reflecting on what it will mean to be taking care of this planet in the future. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, cause I think they're just better than we were and better than our parents were. Um, and they're having more honest, unpacked conversations, I think, right now. And you know, my son is talking about really serious things and um, issues. And I don't know if kids would be talking about this unless we had experienced a lot of the things we've experienced in the last 6 to 12 months. Um, but I think that is one big benefit that I see as well.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you, Josh. Like, listen to the children. Uh, there's, there's somebody I follow named Jesus who had more impact on the world than anybody in history, and he said, "Listen to the children. Um, they have a lot more wisdom than we give them credit for." And also, when it comes to busyness and just the pace uh, that we find ourselves in in, in life in the year 2020, um, prior to COVID is very different, uh, than what we've seen, like what you guys already mentioned, uh, and what we've seen in, in history, what we see even from Jesus himself, um, spending all his time with 12 people or the vast majority of his time with 12 people and being full of joy and highly effective, um, you know, there's just those are just a few, few thoughts that are going through my head, um, but for sure listening to the kids they, around us right now is so valuable as they are. Hashing through some of these big things and um, trying to figure out where they fit, um, yeah, and and listening to them and not constantly just feeding them answers because realizing that um, that frequently we were not given the right answers growing up in school and um, in the books.
1: Yeah, my son, he... he uh, I was giving him what I thought was a fairly normal response. And he basically pointed out that I was I was making the situation one option or another option, and that there was no alternative, and he's like, there's an alternative to this, <laughs> and I hadn't even thought about it the way he was thinking about it, and I, I don't know, I mean, he, it is, it is really humbling, I think, to, to recognize the issues that we're talking about or that we're experiencing or going through as adults. They're experiencing those same issues, but they don't have they haven't this they don't have built up construct in their mind or or as much bias as we do.
0: Yeah and it's definitely still too soon culturally to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway because we are still dealing with our racist and sexist history and racist and sexist present. Uh, so we need our attention to stay on those things. I've suspected for a couple of years now that the next great wave of social change is going to be in how we understand and relate to kids. Um, It was right at at the turn of the 20th century that we began aggressively protecting kids from their exposure to harsh working conditions and other things. And as that matured and developed over the last 120 years, now we understand, are in this place where we're amazed that kids have thoughts of their own <laughs> and can do anything on their own. And, you know, we keep pushing back farther and farther their entrance into adulthood. And I think we're going to see pushback on that socially in the next 50 years, um, exactly for the things that we're noticing about our kids. Um, kids are not adults, but kids are much more than children. I think we're going to learn a social language and a social restructuring that incorporates a lot more honor and consideration and inclusion of kids and parts of society that they're currently excluded from um, because they carry a lot of value and they carry a lot of soul and they carry a lot of, like you guys have said, a lot of unencumbered truth. Not that they ever necessarily need to be the bosses, whatever, but that's what I mean about learning a social language. Cause we hear that. We're like, wait, so, but we can't let a 10 year old run the country. Well, no, not, you know, and we can't, we can't have kids go work in assembly lines in a automobile factory. Okay. No, but like, there's a new way of interacting with children that is available to us that we haven't yet established and discovered as a society. Um, but uh, yeah, like you guys have both said, and it's so true with our kids. I mean, just tonight we were talking with our kids about, um, you know, the, the horrible effects of racism that we are dealing with as a country. And, you know, our kids are just engaging with it because they understand it because they are competent thinking, soulful human beings, and they bring something of value to the table. And the more we go on a society pretending like kids don't bring value to the table, uh, the more it will grow as, an air in the way that we didn't think women brought any value to the table that we didn't think people of color brought any value to the table and i think there's going to be a time in the future where we learn a new social consciousness about how to relate to and include and interact with kids that we're getting tastes of right now with our own children um, and i think just speaks to a wider social truth
2: yeah just last night we were having a conversation with our kids about race and uh, specifically about the topic of redlining because uh, it happened in our neighborhood here uh, a friend of ours recently bought a house and on the deed to the house it says no black person will ever own this home and um, and it was just so crazy like just hearing that but then as we share that with our kids you know just hearing the first things to come out of my daughter's mouth um, was really Valuable, uh, and she said, "She said, so what? What was the consequence for those people who made these bad rules? Um, what was the consequence that they got? You know, now that now that African Americans and anybody can buy this house, um, what was the consequence that those the, those guys who made those bad laws got? Just immediately, she went there, and it was beautiful."
0: And that's our show. Thank you for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. In the next set of episodes episodes 3 and 3b we talk about life as control freaks we explore the enneagram we talk about implicit bias and we also explore the neurological connection between our brains and our eyes and how that impacts how we view people in the world around us and relating it to current events subscribe to make sure you get it and here is a sneak peek enjoy And
1: when I don't have control, I think it it starts to feel like incompetence, um, whether that's in work, for example, start to feel like I must be doing something wrong. I must not be good at what I'm doing. I must not have anticipated this right. I must not be reading people well. And so maybe to regain that sense of um, adequacy i try to find some other area to um, exert my control right some area that like stands no chance against me um like the dishwasher just something so easy that i can dominate Um, and sometimes i try to dominate the people i love the most which usually doesn't go well but they usually feel like easy targets to try to regain that stability and that that normalness
0: A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project and a great big thank you to michelle Lim of clementine brands for all the brand content including the name of this podcast and the cover art as you go through your day remember these words of rainer maria rilke be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them and the point is To live everything, live the questions now.